Here's from Roger Federer, Portrait of an Artist. Five. Federer and time. Remember that time slurs over everything, lets all deeds fade, blurs all writings, and kills all memories. Exempt are only those which dig into the hearts of men by love. Aristotle. Oh, let not time deceive you. You cannot conquer time. W.H. Alden. With his laid-back style and occasional forays into retro fashion, Federer can seem redolent of an earlier time. The calm with which he plays the game calls to mind, paradoxically, given his success on the professional circuit, the amateur era. He has more time on the ball, as if in old footage. His Wimbledon appearances in particular can suggest a summer ease. They summon back memories of previous times when life wasn't lived at such a hectic pace. In another sense, he is a peculiarly modern creature. His play is dependent on all the rapidity and spin that up to the minute graphite racket technology can give you. His life would be impossible without global travel. One sometimes wonders about the carbon footprint of these international stars. And he is a man greatly endorsed by household name corporates. Federer's tennis is capable of provoking numerous associations and contrary appearances, sedate and thunderous, complex and smooth, contemporaneous and nostalgic. It has sometimes been awarded large adjectives. His play is complete, comprehensive, expansive, even immortal. And yet, much of this is surely an illusion perpetrated by the admiring eye against reason. Because his career also has a fixed limit imposed on it. Roger Federer is also committing that cardinal sin of the sports person. He is aging. We have seen that Federer endured a barren 2013, and though he reached the Wimbledon final in 2014 and 2015, as well as the US Open final in 2015, on each occasion, he lost to Novak Djokovic in a way that felt inevitable. Federer looked during these matches like someone caged by time. In Djokovic, he has come up against an immovable object, but perhaps the real difficulty stems from the fallible body, specifically the activity of time on that body. Even here, however, Federer confounds usual trends. He is aging exceptionally slowly by tennis standards. So far, there has been no sharp falling off of the kind of which is afflicting his rival Rafael Nadal, and which has afflicted many of his great predecessors. Federer is still reasonably likely to win, or at least reach the latter stages of every tournament he enters. And at the time of writing, in 2017, he is astoundingly the 2017 Australian Open champion, a sentence which would have seemed improbable only a month ago. After taking six months off in 2016 to repair a body, most assumed would never be able to transport him to Grand Slam success again. Injuries and slowing down. Sport provides a balm to adult lives. 
It takes us away from daily stress and escorts us also from thoughts of mortality. But it also shows us the minutiae of the aging process. Our own decline isn't measurable in tennis results. No doubt we all aged in 2015, but perhaps no one alive did so quite as obviously as Rafael Nadal, who famously had a bad year. But Federer's age was on people's minds at that time too. And he has sometimes seemed in this latter part of his career to use John McEnroe's phrase, a step slow. As the Federer-Nadal final in 2008 showed, sports people succeed or fail by exceedingly fine margins. A minor injury can end a lucrative career overnight. A bad night's sleep can be the difference between victory and defeat. Every athlete is engaged in a daily fight to stay healthy. Even an apparently injury-free player like Federer has still experienced a dizzying array of knocks and scrapes throughout his career. From the shin splints that derailed him at the end of his 2001 breakout year, to ongoing back problems in 2013 and 2016's knee injury, not to mention 2008's mortality-inducing bout of glandular fever. In fact, he hasn't really been injury-free at all. But he is a picture of health when set against Nadal, who has spent about as much of his career recovering from injuries as he has being on the court causing them. Among modern sportsmen, Federer is perhaps most comparable to England cricketer James Anderson in the way his elastic body suffers from fewer gripes than most and also recuperates very quickly from setbacks. Even so, Federer's injuries are a reminder of what one can easily forget while watching him on TV. The intense stress tennis places on his body and the extraordinary physicality of his life. Given this, his longevity is remarkable. It is another one of his achievements to have been so good for so long. Federer provides an illusory glimpse of what it might be like not to age. And there is an obvious vicarious pleasure here. Wouldn't it be wonderful to buck time as he almost appears to do. Still, the fact remains, decline can sneak up at any time. Triumph, addictive in itself, can come to seem the norm until the arc of time stops working in your favor and begins to bend away from glory. In Ovid's Metamorphosis, after hearing the triumphs of Hercules, which grew familiar to the whole world, there is just such an example of dramatic reversal. His conquest of Achalia, that looked like just another, was his last. Hercules might seem heroic, but things begin to overtake him. Returning from this victory, intending to offer up thanks to Jupiter at Cineum on flaming altars, Hercules himself was overtaken by a whisper, by a rumor. This rumor by which the great man is overtaken is marvelously sinister. It is the sound of the tide turning against you. This same inevitable process is vivid among sports people. When a player is riding the crest of their development, as Federer did from 2003 to 7, or as Djokovic did in 2015 to 16, one has a sense that things are working as they should. In the US Open final against Djokovic in 2007, Federer repeatedly served three aces in a row from Love 40 down. 
He was in allegiance with the crisis moment and able to outmaneuver the worrying circumstance with concentration and skill. Nowadays, the crucial match, the vital point, will sometimes find him wanting. Time hides within success and vanishes during episodes of glory. But when a player declines, it weaves itself back into events, all too visible in a limping leg, unstill head, or shaky hand. And yet Federer, more than any other tennis player, has also shown himself untroubled by the onset of age. For him, the pleasure of the sport trumps any sight of disappointments age might bring. In this, he resembles Jack Nicklaus, who won the US Masters Golf in 1986 at the age of 46, and Sakin Tendulkar in cricket, who also played beyond his early precocity, stacking up achievements which were based partly on pure ability, but also on a superior hunger for the game. Many of his records, as with Federer, are related in part to longevity. For Federer, this tolerant attitude toward time appears to have been part of the plan all along. In one of his more surreal interviews with current House of Commons speaker John Burko, Federer explained in 2014, I realized very quickly that it's an entirely different thing winning something for the first time and then having to come back the following year and defend it. Once I reached a certain level, I looked up to the great other athletes out there, like Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Valentino Rossi, and Michael Schumacher. People who did it so long, so many times, and make you wonder, how did they do that? Federer's reaction to his Wimbledon win in 2003 was one of relief, followed by immediate doubling down. This first major championship was longer in coming than it might have been. The frustration of this increased his appetite for the sport exponentially. What is a little decline, he seems to say, compared with the joy of the occasion and the thrill of the chase. The last man standing. His ability to keep playing contributes to an impression of what Thomas Carlyle called royal solitude. Federer's contemporaries, in order of retirement, Safin, Nalbandian, Brodick, and Hewitt have all ceded the spotlight. Each drifted down the rankings as a consequence of sapping energy and lessening motivation. When the lower-ranked younger players come up against him, one sometimes thinks he is condescending to consider their tennis. He is the seasoned player who has seen it all before. Up until the middle of 2016, when injury forced him to miss that year's French Open, Federer played a record 64 consecutive majors. How has he been able to play on for so long to such a high standard? The reasons are both a psychological and technical. His slightly late flowering, he probably had the game but not the temperament to win majors as early as 2001 has created a determination to enjoy the trappings of top-flight competition. Deprivation created hunger. Further, one has the sense that he is playing for the memory of his revered coach, Peter Carter, who died in a car accident in South Africa in 2002. It is noteworthy that the tremendous loss of Carter, which Federer still often references today, was followed by his first great success. 
Fedra converted tragedy into renewed focus and lasting commitment. Accomplishment is often to do with perspectivizing death and having it teach you the vitality of now. But in addition, Fedra has not just the body, but also the game for longevity. The psychological and physical conditions and the nature of his talent have been right for the kind of career he has wanted to pursue. It has often been said, for example, that Fedra has more options than other players. This can be immensely frustrating if you happen to be on the other side of the net. Here is Andre Agassi reviewing his defeat to Federer in the 2005 US Open final. He's the best I've ever played against. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do except hit fairways, hit greens and make putts. Every shot has that sort of urgency on it. I've played a lot of them so many years. There's a safety zone. There's a place to get to. There's something to focus on. There's a way. Anything you try to do, he potentially has an answer for. And it's just a function of when he starts pulling the triggers necessary to get you to change to that decision. It's a magnificent extemper sketch of frustration. But of course, if you're the causer of this woe, if you're Federer, then there is the basis here for almost infinite enjoyment and a long career. In the same post-match interview, Agassi describes this endlessness as if from Federer's side of the net. He hits that short chip, moves you forward, moves you back. He uses your pace against you. If you take pace off so that he can't use your pace, he can step around and hurt you with the forehand. Just the amount of options he has to get around any particular stage of the match, where maybe something's out of sync, seems to be endless. His success out there is just a mere reflection of all the things he can do. And if one has this sort of gift, one is naturally inclined to keep exploring it. Federer's tennis, more than any other players, is rewarding in and of itself. Sometimes when it comes to great achievement, it is possible to point to banal or statistical reasons for superiority. There have been claims, for instance, that Shakespeare's greatness might be partly attributable to his having a larger vocabulary than other writers. In a similar vein, research conducted by John Yandel into the Federer forehand found a far greater degree of variety than is the case with other players. The conclusion was reached. It may sound strange, but I developed this eerie sense of just how tough it would really be to face him across the net. Just when you think you're getting a handle on what he does, he throws you a whole new range of impossible combinations. Once again, we have a sense of the proliferating possibilities of a unique gift. Federer has so far not reached this moment described by Sampras when he realized it was his time to retire. I've always had this little thing to do when I tie my shoes. I finish tying them, slap the ground and say to myself, here we go. But this time, it didn't feel good. And I stopped right there and then. Federer's retirement will be comparatively reluctant. He will be surrendering not monotony, but infinity. The adaptions he makes. Federer's longevity can create an illusion of Olympian immortality. It is another reason, alongside the violation of beauty, 
why his losses can be painful for fans. His defeats today are all to do with the vulnerability not just of his body, but of all our bodies. His triumphs are mini-resurrections, or at any rate, fierce refusals of morbidity. We do not accept the passage of time in our own lives. We fight and rail, we try to buck it. Sport shows us this struggle in vivid microcosm. Usain Bolt's 100 meters win in 2015 in the World Championships in Beijing by 0.01 of a second was qualitatively different to his victory in 2008 in the same city when he had been celebrating by the halfway mark. Perhaps the more marginal victory was in some sense more special. Federer too has shown us how far guile can help handle the aging process. The early part of his career was all to do with fluidity. He seemed to operate on some other plane which difficulty could seldom visit. His appeal was in imagining yourself into just such ease. What would it be like to casually dispense such beauty, such memories of glory? But since that 2008 Wimbledon loss to Nadal, described in chapter three, Federer has had to develop new character traits, grit, invention, patience. He has had to learn how to eke out victories and more often than not, how to handle defeat. During the 2015 hardcourt season, Federer showed that he was continuing to develop with the invention of a new tactic. Dubbed by the media SABR or sneak attack by Roger, a slightly lugubrious acronym, the SABR entails Federer rushing the net on his opponent's second serve. He waits until his serving opponent is looking up towards the ball and then rushes forwards, backing himself to produce a half volley. In being so far forward, he is then nearer the net if he does make the return, and therefore that much harder to pass. The results were astonishing, and one wondered why no one had thought of it before. Federer frequently had the coordination to return the serve, and this knowledge, together with the server's unease, meant that opponents often double-faulted. The tactic contributed to his victory in the 2015 Cincinnati Masters, and to a strong final showing at the US Open. It is not the only change in older Federer. He has also sought to conserve energy by shortening points. He reached two successive Wimbledon finals in 2014 and 2015, partly by attacking the net more often at the behest of his then coach, Stefan Ekberg. And yet these tactics are themselves concessions to age. They are a sign that Federer no longer trusts himself to win longer rallies as he once did. Even so, it is admirable to watch someone who has been preeminent battle so inventively with age. It suggests a restless desire for self-expression. From the beginning, Federer has shown an unusual awareness of time and what it can do to even the greatest sportsman. Arguably, his biggest single breakthrough match was his win against Pete Sampras, 7-5 in the fifth set in the 2001 Wimbledon quarterfinal. This match was all about time, about two experiences of time intersecting. Sampras succumbing to it, Federer helped by it. A brief meeting of two great players. After that victory, Federer recalled, After I beat Pete, 
I felt sort of uncomfortable shaking his hand, almost sad. And later I saw him sitting in the locker room with his head down. And I thought, sure, I'm going to go through moments like this in my career. And so he has. But knowing this in advance has helped him retain perspective during those harder moments. A sane attitude to time and aging helps the sportsman. During one's prime, it can help one summon one's energies. This isn't going to be forever, so I'd better do it now. It can sort of provide perspective during these moments of stress. Who can say how much Federer's level-headedness has helped him during his career? He is well known to cut an almost absurdly relaxed figure in the locker room and almost always arrives on court in the right mindset. To accept that age and decline are inevitable is to revel in the good moments. Calm in the knowledge that defeat, if it is one day to be inevitable, is universal and therefore nothing personal. Roger Federer has perfected a way of playing without fear. Time macro and micro. There is a fan de siècle feel about professional sport at the moment. It is a twilight of the gods. In tennis, Federer, Nadal and Serena Williams all near retirement. Usain Bolt will retire in 2017. In golf, Tiger Woods is a spent force. Cricket has seen the retirements of a whole generation of achievers, including Sakin Tendulkar and Jacques Calais, Kumar Sangakkara and Ricky Ponting. The 2015 Rugby World Cup saw the retirements of Dan Carter and Richie McGraw. Everywhere one looks, one sees proofs of mortality. Time is a word heard often in tennis. At the end of each change of ends, the umpire intones the word, it hovers over proceedings, lending a curious, reaperish quality to matches. Sport, partly there to divert us and distance us from the dark in life, often confounds that wish with imagery of doom, the raised finger of the cricket umpire, or the black flag in Formula One. More generally, sports people are contained within, and strive in the context of stricture and rule. Tennis is resolutely binary. Two sides of the net, the advantage and the juice courts. Two players, two possible results. The players are subject to this rigidity and rebel against it with fluidity and movement. So that while sport is one of our ways of blocking out the facts of decay, it also has a tendency to refer back to it. Each match exists within a brief lit hour, and careers, even the most exalted, fade and pass from view. Who really minds who won Wimbledon in any given year, say, the 1950s? In the long view, and even in the medium term, who will mind that Federer, after seeming to be dominant over him, began to lose to Novak Djokovic on several important occasions? The thought, in fact, need not even be an especially morbid one, and might instead engender a pleasant melancholy. It did so for Pindar. He who wins of a sudden some noble prize in the rich years of youth is raised high with hope. His manhood takes wings. He has in his heart what is better than wealth. But brief is the season of man's delight. Soon it falls to the ground some dire decision uproots it. Thing of a day, such is man, a shadow in a dream.
Yet, when God-given splendor visits him, a bright radiance plays over him, and how sweet is life. Agena, dear mother, guide this city in the path of liberty, through Zeus, and with favor of Aetius the hero, and Peleus, and stout Telamon, and Achilles. One can almost persuade oneself that that dire decision is a bad line call. But melancholy as this is, it also shows us hope. Why should we not concentrate on the bright radiance instead of the brevity of that season of man's delight? This is in fact what David Foster Wallace does in Roger Federer as religious experience. Foster Wallace looks so closely at Federer's play that his forensic prose slows down time. In doing so, he asks us to concentrate on the vivid detail that time contains at the micro level. We have already touched on the famous great liquid whip of the Federer forehand, but there are many other moments. We are also shown him still dancing backwards as a winner lands before he arrives at the stunning claim Roger Federer is one of those rare, preternatural athletes who appear to be exempt, at least in part, from certain physical laws. Good analogues here are Michael Jordan, who could not only jump inhumanly high, but actually hang there a beat or two longer than gravity allows. And Muhammad Ali, who could really float across the canvas and land two or three jabs in the clock time required for one. Other examples of this have come along in the time since Foster Wallace wrote his article. There is Usain Bolt's 9.69 in the 2008 Olympic final, where he miraculously found time to ease off at 80 meters in, kicking his legs up and looking sideways in celebration while still breaking the world record. There was also the great swimmer Michael Phelps' seventh gold at the Beijing Olympics. In a close contest, Phelps seemed to find an extra beat of parallel time in which to correct his final stroke, lunging forwards in a vast clamber to win by 0.01 seconds against Milo Radkavich. Of course, these are illusions. In reality, Michael Jordan was subject to the same gravity as the rest of us. It was only that he was able to do more within its parameters. Likewise, Phelps did not create parallel time he only responded quickly to a tight situation. Great athletes react intelligently. They are masters of time, able to shape and mold it toward better results. Likewise, Federer shuffles into position quicker than his opponents. He realigns forces within his control to meet the demands of the critical moment. He is able to wrest the fleeting contingency from his opponent and turn it not into his own advantage, but also into beautiful instants which remain in the collective memory. All things converge in these moments. They are examples of pure endeavor, individual attempts to solve particular problems. They provide spectators with moments of outstanding kinetic beauty. They are also, in their innocence and part of their role within harmless contest, in some sense, moral. Furthermore, in aggregate, they accrue power to a player like Federer who is in possession of this ability. A power which may be used beyond the court toward charitable ends, furthering their inherent good. In their delight, 
they also provide Federer with a reason to keep playing, since causing them is a pleasure in and of itself. But they also buck time by putting it to such good use. They are moments that might really last and make a long-lasting scratch on our brains. Finally, they also provide a possible route into a discussion about the overall meaning of sport. That's it for now.